Delgado. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to episode 65 of Lifestyle Pirates with me, Big J, and him, Adriano. G'day. This week we are welcomed, or we're welcoming, God, it's been a few days, isn't it? I know, right? Um, Danielle Cheel from Coco. Good morning, Danielle. How are you? Good morning, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I got the three syllables there. I'm already yeah, in trouble. Yeah, you're in trouble. <laughs> already in trouble. Yeah. Um, you've been up for a hell of a long time. Why You texted me at 5.30 to make sure we were still on today. Why were you awake at 5.30? That's actually my normal routine. That's your routine. I wake up early in the morning, yeah. and if I don't look at the night before what I have to do the next day, which yeah. I didn't do last night because it's a weekend. Yeah. So on Friday night I never look at what I'm going to do the next day, but every other day yeah. of the week I do that. Hmm. But because it's the weekend, I wake up in the morning, see what's on today, yeah. and just because it was a work, you know, a commitment, yeah. I have to check that it's still happening. Hmm. Fair enough. So what do your weekends normally look like? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> it depends <coughs> Depends what's on. Yep. As I mentioned to you that I've taken up a hobby of singing in music theatre. Yes. So mm. when that's on, yep. I can hardly get out of bed in the morning okay. because there's a rehearsal or a performance the night before. Mm-hmm. So much of the weekend then is spent either at rehearsal and if it's not, it's preparing meals so I can do that for the – following week yeah so much of the weekend is usually survival mode so i haven't had like a downtime weekend for a long time fair enough and what music do you sing right now it's music theater yeah Mm. so Um, some of the hits from like kind of android weber kind of stuff or do you is it your own well i got it no god no um i'm not i'm a beginner in that area (laughs) and i got got in you've also got a phd in music (coughs) so that's what i wanted to ask well, that background yeah. is totally different to what I'm doing okay. now. Okay. But this is music theatre and the first – I just decided during COVID that I wanted to audition for something and I auditioned for the Pirates of Penzance. Awesome. It's Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, from yeah. England yeah. in the 1800s. And I got in. Very good. Yeah. Well, um, well so done. that was the beginning of it. And, and this this week I've done three auditions actually. Once at, one at Bankstown, once at, one at Normanhurst, which is at ten pm at night, and on Monday it's at Mossman. Wow. Okay. And how <laughs> apt that you're on Lifestyle Pirates, the podcast. There you go. Oh, right. Meant to be, Daniel. <laughs> Meant to be. Um, now you are a businesswoman. You're an author. You're a speaker. I mentioned you've got a PhD. Um, having a PhD in music and then the fashion world, kind of walk me through that. How did how did the PhD mm. in music come about? The PhD in music came around really because I was raised by two parents who went to university. And in that era, it's quite rare to have two university-educated parents. And so it was a given that their children, or in this case their daughter, was going to be university-educated. Okay. But the story goes, like when I was in grade eight at school, I went to a girls' private school Mm -hmm where they taught you, you know, girls can do anything. You have to go to university and you're capable of anything. Not this girl. This girl wanted to leave and go to a fashion college. (laughs) (laughs) And when my parents gave me, when I asked my mother if I could change schools and go to a fashion school, you know know your parents, if looks could kill, I got one of those looks. Yeah, right. Okay. (laughs) And so I never asked again. So I continued in music, got the degree, got the PhD, and thought, I've kept them happy now. It's my turn. Okay. So that desire, I loved that music mm. journey. Mm. As you can tell, I did well in it and I thrived and I really loved it. I was at university institutes around the world on a scholarship. 
but that little girl desire that I had at age 13 of loving fashion and texture, yeah. that, that urge had never left me. So I never wanted to be one of those people six foot under and thought I always wish I had but. Yeah. Mm. And due to different life circumstances, I left music and went on that journey. Yeah. So where, does, where did the fashion bit come from? If mum and dad <coughs> were both academics, was that a kind of was that a natural because they would they dressed well or have you always just liked fashion or were you watching shows or where did that kind of I guess interest at such a young age come from? Good question. Um, so I'm of the era that TV actually wasn't in homes mm. when I was born. Like TV, you know, people think you have to be 900 years old yeah. to not be around when TV was there. I'm not, you know, my mother's era who's still alive. So I didn't grow up with a TV. Um, so I didn't get it from TV. Mm. It came from, I guess like all things in life, it's always more than one factor. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of always use the analogy that my brain's a bit like the sun with all the rays coming out. So <laughs> lots of points go there and then it jiggles around so the fashion industry came from when I was growing up um, my parents did send me to lots of holiday craft classes yeah you know pottery classes sewing classes um, painting classes really creative classes like I can remember at home building underneath our house because I grew up in Queensland so we had stumps and I can remember putting big sheets of plastic around the stumps and painting them purple and I made my very own purple home. So I always um, did and was encouraged in school holidays, just not for a career, (laughs) to do very creative things. And at school we did sewing classes. Um, Was that home ec, home economics, did you guys call it here? Uh, it was called that, but this yeah. wasn't home economics. Yeah. Um, this was a mandatory part, like in grade five and grade six. Right. Like I made bloomers by hand. I had to do lots of sewing. And I always did really well. And it's over the most stupid thing. Like in, when you learn to sew, you have to draw a thread in a piece of fabric. Mm. And you can see the threads where it's woven. Mm. And you had to go up to and down to and up to and down to threads so that we had even running stitches and for whatever it's worth what I thought was an absolute no-brainer nobody else in the class could be bothered counting two and two and two and two so I was the only one in the class that always got 10 out of 10 for sewing (laughs) (laughs) so I just always liked that yeah okay and I and I guess it's just never gone away I I love that sort of thing yeah so what was the I I mean first of all I think it's you call it attention to detail, really. Yeah. Mm. That, that's my thing now with knitting and what I've got involved in. Yeah. Um, but I think from a very early age, I had that attention to detail. Yeah. And so, what took you to India in the first place? Because I mean, I was it the Aussie? Uh, yeah, Australians have this passion and kind of romance for travel. Was that just you went on a kind of backpacker holiday or? Definitely not. Definitely not. My youngest son and I went to India uh, about four years ago before I started the business and I vouched and vowed I would never step foot in that country ever, ever again. (laughs) We had the most horrendous experience (laughs) ever. Why why is that? (laughs) It was was just shocking. It was very, very hot. Um, Like like, the Australian summer hot or worse? Worse. Like high 40s. Oh, wow. That's brutal. Yeah, that's Um, horrible. At that time, I paid what 
we'd always gone on holidays in youth hostels and stuff like that. And because it was India and I was just a girl by myself with my son, mm. I paid what I thought was a small fortune for hotel accommodation, mm. you, know, yeah. you know, a few hundred dollars a night. Mm-hmm. The food was disastrous. <laughs> um, oh, really? I remember they washing – this is a long time ago now, but I remember they washed the tomatoes in detergent – Oh, and so what? when, because when I cut a tomato, like you could taste the detergent. Oh no! And yeah, the food was just horrendous. The whole thing wasn't good. I remember changing borders from one state to another state, and we had to wait in this long queue while the driver had to go and get permission to go across the border. Yeah. He wound up the windows. It's baking, baking hot. No air conditioning. Beca- no, <laughs> because um, there were wild monkeys and whatever, like people touting tourists because this was all tourists. So we're sitting in the car. It's it's scalding hot with wild monkeys climbing all over the car and then, blow and behold, a cobra, like whatever you call it, a snake charmer mm. comes out. And like I said to I remember saying to my son, Michael, do not look at them under any circumstance because they'll want money. So we're looking straight ahead and this cobra comes up the side of the window across. So we had snakes crawling on the outside of the car, monkeys joining, jumping everywhere. It's like baking hot, and I just couldn't. That was just one of the experiences. Sounds like Indiana Jones. I was going to it say was the horrendous. Exact same thing. <laughs> like, I was literally verbatim going to say the exact same thing. Wow. So, <laughs> forgive me for asking this, and you've probably been asked before then, Danielle. How the hell and why did you then decide to go back and set up a business in India? Mm. It was just one of those life things that what happened was I had a hand knitting store mm. um, in Brisbane. I mm. grew up from scratch to be one of Australia's largest independent hand knitting stores and sold that, moved to Sydney and wanted to start my own brand selling finished hand knitted garments. Mm-hmm. It was just on a journey into that, maybe only one year, like a very short journey into it. Mm-hmm. And somebody got on to me from the AWI, the wool industry, mm-hmm. and said, this is great, would you like to do a fashion parade? They sponsored a fashion parade. They said, this is great, we can help you expand. I was in the CBD, I can't remember what building or who it was meeting with, saying, we're going to support you to do this. It was a fantastic concept. You know, Australian-made, mm-hmm. Australian hand-knitting. This was years ago, like mm-hmm. 15, a long time ago. Yeah, because you've been doing this for over 10 years, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. And then I got a phone call from the same guy who chaired this meeting mm. that thought this whole concept was amazing. And you could tell by his tone of voice, he said, I need you to come into a meeting. We've got something to tell you. And there was just something that, you know, I was like, God, what's going to unfold? You can just tell people. Was it, was it excitement or trepidation, though? Seriousness is the word that I would use. Right, okay. And I walked into the meeting and everybody's already there. And there's this young girl sitting at the end of the table crying. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? It's intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) And I just sat down and he said, brace yourself. And I'm like, what what else is going to come out? Anyway, he told me that the legislation changed and it was no longer legal to... So at that point in time, I paid... Pensioners or women, I'd find the knitters by placing ads in suburban magazines mm. saying, would you like to get paid for your hobby? 
And right. it was under the Gillard administration that became illegal because we became responsible for their workers' health and compensation in their homes. Yeah, right. So I'm like, I'm not going to their homes. So the business finished right at that conversation, right then and there. So you had, bu- <laughs> you had built a network then. So this was like a real community project from the outset. So you'd built a network of... I had 150 of Australian women knitting for me. Wow. Wow. What, in Brisbane or in Sydney? Everywhere. Everywhere, but yeah. mostly in Sydney. Yeah, wow, okay. So I had my Brisbane knitters because yeah. that's where I was from. I kept those mm. and I had the Brisbane the knitters in Sydney. Yeah. And from that meeting, you had to pivot from there? Well, from that meeting, that was the end of it. So, I don't know, somebody said to me, what are you going to do now? And, and, I, and I think even one of my sons said, what are you going to do now? I've got two boys. Mm. Um, and I just sort of stopped for a minute and I said, no, no, you, you should know your mother better than that by now. There's no turning back. I'm not going back to music. I think when a friend asked me that, I said, yeah, I just laughed and I said, no, no, that's like going back to an old boyfriend. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so I, I needed some space to think mm. what was going to happen. So maybe for a few weeks or a month, there was just nothing because I, I just needed to think. And I, I looked into Vietnam. I, I started to look at other countries of where to get garments manufactured. And I've always been a really lucky girl. I've always met the right person at the right time. And I didn't realise it during that time. But this was another example. So what happened was this guy phoned me that I hadn't seen for ages. In fact, I met, in fact, I met him at a LinkedIn seminar when LinkedIn was first launched. So that'll tell you how long ago it was. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like a bit of a LinkedIn? (laughs) (laughs) And because at that LinkedIn seminar, Mm. he was a computer whiz kid and he said, I can help you launch this on the the, the computer, whatever. Internet. Yeah. Anyway, I'd never heard from him. I just kept on my journey. He called me up and said, you want to have lunch? Well... It couldn't have been a better time because I had nothing to do. I was trying to figure out what to do. So right now I don't have five seconds to breathe. And lunch that's, sounds great. And that's most of my life. But in that period of time, I could have had a lunch that went for like a month. Yeah. And so I met with him and, you know, how you been? Haven't seen you for a long time. So I asked him that and he started to tell me all this, you know, my wife got cancer, so-and-so died, this happened, this happened, this happened. Wow. And so I'm sitting there listening to that and he said, like, how are you? So I'm like, in my head, I'm like, in comparison to you, I'm fine. Yeah. So I just answered, yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Mm. That was the end of that and we just kept going and chatting about different things. And then I said to him, well, I'm really well, but I just thought I'd tell you I have nothing to do with my life right now and I'm really not sure what I'm going to do. Mm. And he said, what happened? I told him the story and he said, my boss was the sales manager or the top manager of Hewlett Packard. Yeah. He's retired and he lives in India. I think the pair of you would get on and he will help you launch this in India. Yeah, wow. So he introduced me to this random guy. I can remember emailing him every day for about three weeks and he um, there was no Zoom, you know, meeting somebody like that then. So... Um, he did everything actually by email to deter me. Mm. You can't do this unless you live here. It'll be too hard for you. And I guess unconsciously, at that, even at that point in time in my life, I knew that 
I'm pretty resilient and I want to do this. Mm. So it came to a point in the email and I just said, I'm coming. And this was after you'd already done the trip to India? For yeah. A yeah no, and right. India actually didn't have anything to do with it. It more like... It was just I, I wanted the business going. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, 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 it could have been any country. I wanted to meet knitters. I wanted to continue on my journey. Was it the same place in India? No. Okay. Um, it was down south. So the holiday was up north in Rajasthan, yeah. what do I call a tourist triangle. Yeah, yeah. And I got off the plane in Chennai, okay. which is down the south. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so I met this guy and he introduced me to 10 women who – could already knit, but I know people throw off that knitting being an old person's hobby, but the reality is it's like teaching someone to do an Olympic sport. Knitting is a language and it's physical. It's like learning an instrument. And so saying that these people could knit is like you telling me you can walk and I can train you to be an Olympic runner. Mm. Like their level and what I needed couldn't have been further apart if you tried. So they knew the concept and that's about it. Like it's like if I said to you, you're going to become a pole jumper. Like Mm. you know the concept but that's about as far Mm. as it goes. Um, Anyway. I can see you as a pole jumper. It's actually my (laughs) profession. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I I met these ladies and it was a really amazing experience because – you look at each other. You know when you meet somebody, when you go to a party even in a crowded room, you think unconsciously, like, I'd love to talk to them. Nah, I'm not going to talk to them. You know, you, you sort of mm. sum up the room a bit. So is it all right if I touch you? Yeah, it's fine. So what happened is they went like this. Mm. And they took my hand like this. And they took my hand like this. And they just kept holding my hand mm. like this and walked me around their village. And I can't speak Tamil and they couldn't speak English. And just the eye contact and they pointed out to me, like you could tell this is my mother, this is where I live, these are my children, this is my mother-in-law. And these people had lived there in these villages. Like as an Australian, I didn't really have a concept of what a village Mm -hmm. was like. And they never left that village for literally thousands of years. So they lived in hardened mud houses with hardened mud floors and thatched roofs. Mm -hmm. And I took them around the village and there was just some attraction between them and me. Mm. And on the plane, on the way home, I thought, I'm going to shut down my brand and I'm going to knit for lots of brands because I think I could employ a lot of you. Mm. And that's how the transition occurred. So the fact that it was in India was kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Because I remember when your brand used to be your name, and so the the Coco concept. This is the, this is the bit you're talking about. That's right. Yeah. So when I met you, yeah. the brand was my name, yeah. um, and that's what I started before yeah. it closed down because yeah. of that legislation. You probably remember it. Bonds went offshore. Yeah. Like yeah. it was really the era that all Australian manufacturing closed down, yeah. and oh. all the brands the went off. Yeah. And and it was in that era. So that's what happened mm. there. Um, a lot of it wasn't made explicit because you can't really go on the news saying these sorts of things because people jump down your throat and whatever, you just sort of... That's why I do a podcast. Yeah. So what does business and employment look like in India? Like India is ha- a democratic country. Mm. Like It's like Australia. Like People think, even though it's a third world, like there are laws and yeah. you know, 
if you break the law, even though there was corruption and bribery, you, you're still fined if you break the law and put in jail. I mean, and because it was founded by the British, much of the law is similar to Australia. Yeah, yeah. So you just can't walk in there as a foreigner and start. I mean, I've jumped hurdles, yeah. really large ones. Like one time I went to India and I just walked the streets of the nearest local town, I suppose you'd call it, looking for a sign in English that said accountant. <laughs> and I'd just go in there and say, do you speak English? And if they said yes, then I started with that accountant, like forming a company, having to give all sorts of documentation, mm. blah, blah, blah. And then then it unfolds. It's like any country. There are people who are skilled in their profession and aren't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I won't tell you how many accountants I've been through. Oh, look, look what's <laughs> happening. That's not okay. Okay, bye. I have to walk the street again and find the next one. Yeah. And gradually you just sort of move up as you learn what not to do. Yeah, yeah. But that's so, that's how it unfolded, mm-hmm. and that was the story, really. So you were on the plane back, having been you know led around these villages. What was going through your mind? Just what an amazing experience it was. Mm. Like the very first visit that I went there, I stayed in a bamboo hut, mm. and I remember getting up in the middle of the night, going to the toilet, and excuse you know no, no subject matter off <laughs> off limits. Yeah. And, and right. a frog jumped up the toilet and oh. hit me on the bottom. <laughs> and, like, I'm screaming in the middle of the night. And I came back and found a therapist to say, I've been so traumatised in India, I don't really want to go back. And yet I want to do this so badly. I want to produce, like, a commercialise a hand artisan concept. Yeah. So the drive was bigger. So, like... I've had lots <laughs> that's a stupid little thing but and the accountants a more serious thing but you know there there were lots of things that happened along the way I've got like a million stories of oh my god what now because mm. <laughs> so, so I think I mean off, off I mean to put it crudely it's it's, it's kind of offshoring but there, I think it's definitely it's a, it's, it's it's offshoring. a lot deeper for, for you given your experience of things so what then did you then do so you've come back I'm seeing your therapist. <laughs> what what then did you then what was that process? So you kind of went, right, do I now need to re- did you do the same thing that you did in Brisbane and Sydney where you go because obviously you couldn't knock on doors and, and find out where the, the old ladies lived. How did you recruit or and I guess source source the people or the villages? You know, what was that kind of process look like? And then how did you train them? Um did, I mean I assume you pay them, like how does all that stuff work? It was quite organic mm. as it unfolded. Because I sort of have business in my DNA. Like my parents were in business, as my children joke. I don't know if you'd ever make a very good employee, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> so you just work it out as you go. Mm. But the women in India were in their 20s. Right. And so it was a trade for them. Like their husbands were tilers or painters and they came to work and hand-knitted. Yeah. Um, so I ran initially and wrote whole training programs like modules and modules 30 modules you know teaching them all the different hand knitting's a language like yeah. you can never learn too much it's a, that's my fascination with it right so i wrote all those modules they couldn't read they'd never been to school or minimum education that was so, the next question was did i assume you write them in english so 
the patterns were in English, so I had to teach them that. Mm. And then I remember one time getting on the plane with these massive charts because I bought paper, I don't even know the size of it, now A0, and put it in these tubes Mm. that I took on the plane where I charted out all the knitting so that they could read it visually Mm. while I was teaching them the words so we could still produce garments. And I grew the business and use that to this very day on a concept of opposites. So yes, no. Gets a bit confusing in India though because it's not quite so clear. Uh, yes, no. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we even that gets really tricky. <laughs> but we do yes, no, front, back, yeah. up, down, and the crucial one, same or different. Yeah. So that was that. And like... Also, I remember the second night there, I went to bed really late trying to memorise the names of these ladies. Mm. I mean, now they just roll off your tongue like, you know, water, bangles, sky, grass, but the names were so foreign to me and I really wanted to say good morning, Mm. whatever their name was. Mm. And so I spent hours trying to learn their names and put their face, Mm. you know, with their name. So it was personalised from the beginning. Yeah. And I, th- I think one of the things that struck me from that day one was, you know, they're just people like you and I. Mm, um, of course. And all they want, just like you and I, is a life that they're really happy with. Um, if they were married, they want money to be able to send their children to school. So it's not even about the schooling. It's like all parents want to give their children opportunities that they didn't have, mm. that they wish they'd had. Mm. And it's this thing of, wow, you know, we're all people at the end of the day mm. and it sort of shifted to that I need someone to make my garments and then when I got the name knit one garment, change one life because when you haven't been to school, you've never had the opportunity to knit or to make or have a whole project. So the question that I know I've done a huge amount of talking but the question I'd like to ask you is, do you remember the first project that you ever handed in at school? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> um, what was the first project at school that you remember? And I think how it was a dinosaur. Yeah, how old a, were you? Oh, I'd be in year three. What's that? How old is that? Ten? Is that ten? No, that's less than that. I think it's – what's year three? I think it's six, seven, something like that. Yeah, it was a dinosaur project. I was very proud of it, actually. Exactly. Yeah. And – why? What was it about that project that made you feel so proud? I think when I when I so I, I had to draw a dinosaur actually, and then I had to talk about the dinosaur, and I was so proud of how I drew the dinosaur. It was well, it was way better than I ever thought I could do. And then when I handed it in, I was I was well researched on it, so I, I did a lot of research on it. And then when I handed it in, it was probably one of the biggest effort I've ever put into a project actually. <laughs> and were. Was, were you externally rewarded for that? Like did teachers, parents, friends also say to you, that is amazing? Yeah. Or was it all from within? No, it was a bit of both. Um, I was a very troubled uh, student at school. So for me to actually hand in a project is or, already a bonus. Um, so my teachers were quite surprised um, that I put so much effort into it. And then when I handed it in, they were, they were very uh, complimentary. And I was pretty happy with myself as well. So that must have been a really rewarding feeling for you because here we are X decades later Mm. and that story Mm. is the first one that comes out. Yeah, yeah. So it really 
did something inside. For sure. That was enriching to your life. So imagine never having that feeling because that was only the first time you've had it. Mm. So these ladies had never had that feeling until they met me. Yeah, that's an amazing thing that you've been able to provide them. So that knitting a whole jumper and it's like, I made this. They've never had that. So in rural villages, and it's just traditional culture really, Mm. um, it's one of those women things that it's male dominant. So you get to a certain age and the parents arrange the marriage. So you're taught never to make a decision. So the parents make the decision for you about who you're going to marry and then once you're married, your husband makes all decisions for you. Mm. We need food. Go to the supermarket. You can't do that work. Can I please go and do this? So they're taught without decisions. Mm. And so by the time you get that experience of knitting that project and knowing what that reward feels like, this is how I remember one day, five years in, one of the ladies said to me, Danielle, you've given us wings that help us fly. You've set my brain free. Jeez. Yeah, wow. Because I asked them, like, what do you want to do? Mm. They're like, I don't know. And I'm like, you do know. What Probably is it that, that you before. actually hundred <laughs> percent? Mm. What is it that you actually want? So can I play devil's advocate a little bit? Yeah. Here? So were there any challenge? Were you presented with any challenges on giving these women opportunities by perhaps their partners or just that, that kind of? Culture, Everybody asks me that. That yeah. kind of constantly <laughs> the same thing. You know, um, it's a big disturbance. Yeah, that's because that's a that's a big ripple, yeah, and that will have a ripple effect, which I'm sure you know. Ten over ten years on, you're you're starting to see. But was there anyone going? Hey, well, hey hang on, Who, who's this? Who's this? Aussie who's this white town? woman? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's you know you know giving my, my wife a brain, um, to, to, to use one of your things, and, and, and give my wife wings and, you know, hope and – hope's probably wrong, but do you know what I mean? Like, was there – I'm there sure there robots? was, yeah. but the answer that I always give is my concern was actually the women. Yeah. I didn't go into their home. I didn't ask about their relationship unless they came to me. Yeah. So, you know, most of those women in one village that we had then – had husbands that hit them a lot. Mm. They're married to men who drink a lot. Like I can remember talking to one girl and she came to work crying on this particular day and I'm like, what happened? And like I learned through a translator, I intentionally chose not to speak that language so that it forces them to speak more English. Um, Every day when her husband saw her, he would say, your face is so ugly, I wish I didn't have to look at you. What the fuck? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. And so I would then respond with, what do you do when he says that? What do you really want to do? So I became their support agent mm. as well as their knitting Skill and they just gradually. I guess the thing is, they love coming to work. Mm. You know, even to this very day, they'll tell you it's our safe space. And so, and they've got their friends, and they can talk about. Yeah. You know, it's like the women's gossip circle. Yeah, 
And proudly, as a result of that, we were named by B Corp as one, being one of the best in the world for building communities. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. So, right, so am I right in thinking then, um, unlike Australia, the Australian model where they were knitting a home, they, you actually gave them a place to knit? Like a, a we rent hall. buildings. Right. We okay. rent buildings. And if they didn't have it, we paid for the construction of the building. Why? So that and this actually then placed us as being one of the um the highest standard, like I call us the Maserati of hand knitting. Yeah. Mm. So that, well, of course we have um there are many places around the world yeah. that hand knit, but to the best of my knowledge, we're the only ones that come to a central location yeah. and give the women work and that also keeps the standard up very high yeah, of the garments that we produce so we've produced garments for really big runway brands that everyone would have heard of yeah. and then as long as it's hand knitting we take the business on yeah. so we um have knitted for a thousand brands that you never would have heard of mm-hmm. and then since COVID, i've had to be really you know lateral thinking thinking how can i do this because the planes didn't fly and you know the freight prices has gone through the, the roof skyrocket um so we started knitting for corporates too, wall hangings, logos, all sorts of different things. Cool. So going back to the communities, when you were going over there, how, lo- how, how long were your visits? When I first went, I almost went every six weeks. Right, okay. And then what happened was as I sort of got into it and we got busier, um, I would stay for a month. Okay. And then it, then it went to like, Three months, and then I became almost like a gypsy because I'd fly there, do my work, go to Europe, exhibit at trade fairs, get more customers, come back there, come back home, and then that's one season, and then you do it again for yeah. the next season. Mm. Yeah, that's cool. That's very exciting. What was your accommodation? <laughs> I really like enjoyed it at the time. Accommodation was better the next time round compared to your first trip to India. <laughs> <laughs> I well, talk? I stayed in that place yeah. quite a few times, and yeah. then eventually I rented a room in one of the villages as I got to know the area, mm. and that sort of also made it. Oh, she's equal with us; like mm. she stays with us. Mm. And everyone right. said to me that village isn't safe, and I'm like, those women would never let anything happen to me. I'm not in the slightest afraid. Yeah. So, do you speak Hindi now? It was Tamil. It's oh, okay, down sorry. the south, yeah. and no. Okay. Like I can say hello, how are you, and that's yeah, yeah. about it. So how <laughs> many how many ladies did you start with? Ten. And how many how many do you have now? Right now we have sixty or seventy. Wow! But before COVID, we were like around the two hundred fifty, two hundred seventy mark, and we wow. were well on the way to being the largest all girls company in the world from women who had never been to school. Yeah. Oh, um, wow. But Wear an import ex, like depending on what hat I want to wear, it's like what do you do for a living? On that particular day when COVID had the outbreak, we were importers and exporters. Hmm. And when there's no planes, yeah, Zippo business. Yeah. So I thought I'd lost the whole lot. Um, so now underneath I'm paddling really hard to build it back up and it is slowly building back hmm. up, but it's just taken a mighty lot of work. Hmm. And, and so did you – were you – Obviously, I can imagine you would have missed missed your friends over there. Were you able to stay in contact with them um, in COVID? I have um, all the leaders of the village speak English. Yep. It's part of getting the job. Yep. Um, and we have regular staff meetings on Zoom in English. Since COVID, it's it's one of those things. You know, if you you guys are too young to know this, but if oh, you're a good, you. <laughs> but if you're <laughs> a good kind. parent. You actually 
give your children wings to fly and you don't worry about them when they mm. go out because you know that you've given they have really good values and they can look after themselves and they'll be safe. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's a bit the same of these ladies. Um, from me not going there, they've lifted what they've done and we've implemented all sorts of other quality control measures and companies have given us mobile phones oh, cool. um, so that the girls can all do their own quality control and it's, we have a digital quality control and a hands-on quality control. So the standard since I've stopped going has actually risen quite significantly hmm. because they used to be so dependent on me. Oh, Danielle will fix it. Danielle will see this and she'll make us fix it up. Yeah, it yeah. was all about Danielle will do this and Danielle will do that. And as hard as I tried when I was going there to make them responsible for their own work, because I told you they've never made a decision, so they've never actually had to be responsible for themselves. Or had the confidence. 100%. Mm. That's grown enormously, and that's a big upside of this whole COVID thing. Right. Mm. That's huge. That's a good takeaway. That's huge, yeah. And so you're able to go back and forth there now? Uh, no, I have chosen not to, and that's got nothing to do with COVID. I've actually had heart surgery. Right. I've had two surgeries. Um, one of it unfolded while I was in India. That was a oh, nightmare. That must have been petrifying. <laughs> well, what unfolded was, as I've always said through the years, if anything ever happens to me in India, make sure you fly me home. Yeah. <laughs> I never want to be in one of those rural hospitals. Oh, I can't imagine. And so I was flying from a trade show in Paris to India going into That's the details, vomited all the way, had never done that on a trip, but, you know, it's everybody's worst nightmare. Mm. Thought I'd be better once mm. I hit land, mm-hmm. vomited all night, realised something's wrong, went to the receptionist and I said, I need a doctor. And she said, there's a hospital three buildings up. So it was like 4am, I walked up the street God only knows where I was, Mm. um, to some random hospital and they told me something's wrong with my heart. So I was in hospital there. They put me on a drip, nearly lost my arm. I still have the scar here. It swelled from here to here because they missed the vein. You're kidding me. And my arm was going and they're like, you have to eat. And I'm like, nothing. I, I seriously, like, had no energy. I hadn't eaten for, like, four days in mm. hospital. My arm was swelling enormously. And I remember one day saying, you'll have to take the drip out. And they said, we can't do that. And I said, if you don't take it out, I will. So I actually took the drip out. Thank God I'm well connected. I phoned somebody I knew who I'd met on the Australian Indian Business Council her husband knew and worked in another hospital in India. That woman saved my life. She took an ambulance and I went to another hospital where they did properly. their thing. Yeah. I thought I was better. Spent, I don't know, a week in that hospital, took myself to a hotel, some fancy hotel, very fancy, because I wanted a proper meal by this More stage. More a few hundred bucks a night? Yes, in <laughs> India, in that city. Yeah. And then went down to work. So I stayed in India for a couple of months then, went home and just went to a cardiologist for a checkup. Yeah. And they said, oh, what's happened there? You're going to have to have surgery. 
So um, my mitral valve had prolapsed. It's like the elastic in your underpants. It stretched yeah. out and it never stretched back in. Yeah. So they had to repair that. And when they were in there, they found out that I was born with a, a hole in my heart. And so they fixed that. And you didn't know that? No. Right. And lots of people apparently have it and don't know. Yeah, right. right. Okay. But having told that, I grew up swimming a lot and it made sense because I never could do endurance swimming. Yeah. Like I would win one lap and I could never do endurance. Yeah, yeah. And like I understand Just now why. Yeah. Anyway, so they fixed that and I guess it's because of that. And then what happened was I had to have a second surgery because they realised after the first one something happened and not enough oxygen was going to my brain. Like, I always felt awful. And I thought, oh, this is how I'm going to outlive my days. Yeah. So I'm a bionic, a bionic woman. I'm a product of modern medicine, so I wear a defibrillator. Yeah. So this thing here is like half the size of your iPhone. Okay. So I had a second surgery. They put this in. And after that, I was better. Like, you can tell I'm no yeah. different to you. Yeah. And it's because of this device. So that's active all the time as a defibrillator? All the time. It's not just... So if you... I need it, yeah. it's there. Okay, so it's not like working right now, but if you start... No, because I'm fine if something... Yeah. So in, since I've had it inserted, which is 18 months now, it's kicked in once. Yeah. Um, Do you feel it when it kicks in? Yeah, you know. Yeah. But it's amazing and modern medicine is amazing. But yeah, you asked absolutely. about going back to India. So it's really because of this mm. that I've chosen not to fly because I won't fly anywhere, let alone India... I just have this voice inside me, don't get on a plane. That's fair. Because um, it's asking for trouble and I'm well without it, so why would I ask for trouble? Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a device that's beside my bed and they download the information every night and it goes somewhere to America. And when yeah. I had this device, I remember Googling it and I connected with the guy who invented it on LinkedIn and I sent him a message <laughs> saying, like, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, wow. Wow. And how that's cool how I that got into be. the singing because I couldn't breathe. Yeah. Um, after the surgery, my lungs. So I took up swimming and singing so yeah. that I could breathe. And that's become a, like a passionate hobby instead of living on an aeroplane. Yeah, right. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. <laughs> but, but the business is still going. So they're just Only going. just by the skin of its teeth. Yeah. Like I'm working very hard behind the scenes to yeah. get more and more customers to yeah. grow it back. But we're still there, yeah. And when you say customers, you mean brands that want you to knit things? Brands and... Um, and the end user. Yeah, any corporate person. We've we've got hand-knitted gifts. We do hand-knitted logos. We do hand-knitted wall hangings. We yeah. can do customised jumpers with logos. Like anybody who wants hand-knitting, yeah. I, I reach out to now more than just the fashion brands. Yeah. Wow. Who would be your ideal brand to work with? It's really interesting because it's, you know, a lot of people would say a name drop brand. Mm you know, like Gucci or one of those famous big brands. Mm. But for me, a brand that's ideal for the business to work with is somebody who gives repeat orders on a regular basis because mm. brands are so fickle. You know, one season they could give nothing. Yeah. Another season it can be hundreds, thousands or whatever and then you don't hear from them in two years and then they want another thing. So it's very hard running a business like that because yeah. it's all over the place. So the ideal customer is somebody who's stable. Yeah. And I guess over the years, have you seen a change in? Because I think fashion's quite disposable now, um, as well. We don't tend to keep a lot of things for a long period of time. And I know that your your garments there, yeah, the Aussie merino wool, 
Is that right? We knit out of all sorts of yeah. fibres, yeah. of which one is wool. Like anybody who asks us to knit anything, we've done. So we've knitted from saris that are shredded up. We've knitted from recycled plastic. We've knitted from, really? y- you know, anything. So it's not just wool. Alpaca, silk, a- any product that you can knit with, we've knitted with it and as long as it's knitting. Yeah, okay. Okay. So the whole the disposable fashion thing is actually that's actually good for you then isn't it if you're if you can knit from other things then you could say you're upcycling well we do upcycle mm, and yeah. we we don't waste any thread so we've got garments that we've knitted from all our scrap yarns that we've tied together i've seen them They're we cool. buy thank you we buy yarn from a recycled mill in india they buy the um clothes that usually goes to the earth's landfill and they break it down and spin it so we buy mm. that yarn as well um What's the quality of yarn like uh, when you're pulling apart other garments to make yarn? It's actually it? really good. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. It feels normal. The look of it is what I call a bit of a rugged outdoor look. Yeah. It's not like a soft, fluffy look that you're going to wear out to a posh dinner. Like yeah, yeah. Some garments look like soft and a bit more dressy, more well, looking Feminine at some of the fashion of these days, work. the rugged look is probably in anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Says the man that's not had a shave for a week. All oh, right, ease up, mate. It's part of the look. <laughs> well, this yarn sort of thing would be the sort of thing that if you went to a soccer match on the weekend, yeah. it's it's that look, not yeah. sort of going out to a posh dinner look. Yeah. That's, that, that's like the look of gym. that yarn. <laughs> Absolutely. So we'll get you in a jumper after this podcast. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> so with... Um, I'm extra medium, by the way. Extra medium. <laughs> extra medium. Yeah. I haven't heard of that size before. <laughs> Is that a small, large? Yeah. Well, it depends on what country you're in. <laughs> so, are you? I kind of get the sense that whilst it was a byproduct of a government decision, there's. I get the sense there's actually a lot of gratitude. Huge. You know, when when you talk about your journey, because you're, you know, you're very animated. Your eyes are sparkling. You've been smiling for the whole thing as you've been telling this story. So there's a. Is there a lot of kind of gratitude about how this has come about and how it's played out? I've struggled a lot financially through that mm. COVID mm. thing. Um, but in the scheme of life, full stop, from a little girl, like learning mm. to do these things, mm. I feel really blessed. I feel that I've led a very rich life. Mm. I've had a lot of experiences that, Many people never have. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I'm firmly planted in middle age now, so it takes a long time to learn about yourself. Yeah. And every decade that goes by, you, most people learn more and more about themselves, what they like, what they don't like, what their personality is. And I've learned through the years, like I'm really resilient. Um, I'm really strong lateral thinker. Mm. You know, so if something comes up, I can always think of like five other ways. In fact, that's what I've taught the ladies. So if they come to me with an issue, uh, you know, in my head, it's like I'm not your Panadol for your problems. Mm. So, you know, I say to them, what's one thing you could do? Mm. What else could you do? What's another thing you can do? Oh, do you have any other ideas of what she could do? So which one feels right for you? What are you going to do? Mm. So I really feel, yeah, I've led a really rich life. And because of this whole thing, I'm really, really lucky to be alive and I just love it. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. That's awesome. I think it's <laughs> phenomenal. So you started off with music with your PhD. 
and you have um, fallen back in love with it just recently. So what's what's brought you back into music? It started because of the heart surgery mm. because I don't know if you know anybody that's had major surgery, but after having surgery they have that little – have you ever seen that little device that has a ping-pong ball in it? You might have seen it on TV. You know, you blow into it oh, and yeah, you have yeah, to yeah, have yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the ping-pong rice. Have yeah. you seen that? Yeah, I have. So I couldn't do it. Yeah. So when I was oh, really? in hospital I couldn't do it. And so everybody on our floor – on my floor – Mm. male and female could do this yeah, yeah. and they were all at least 10 or 20 or 30 years older than me yeah, yeah. and they all could do this yeah. and because I was young the nurse's attitude was oh don't worry she, she'll get this she, she's fine she'll do it yeah. but I never could yeah. and I knew that something was wrong with my breathing yeah. so I just went on this whole journey of different breathing specialists different you know releasing your ribs like there's a whole thing into this whole breathing thing so like anything I've taken on I've always gone into a lot of detail so yeah. I know a lot about what I know and yeah. I don't know anything about a whole lot of stuff I'm yeah, you not mentioned a before generous. attention to detail so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so when I go down a rabbit hole I really yeah, yeah. go down it Sounds so familiar. <laughs> so I went down this I think it's part of being on the spectrum I've learned <laughs> in my old age but whatever um so I went down this rabbit mm. hole of breathing mm. and Two of the things like swimming and singing, yeah. that just came to me. Mm. So that's how the joy of music started again, really, because mm. of her heart surgery. Yeah. And the whole breathing. So you've got to learn to breathe. Yeah, yeah. To sing. So tell me what musical theatre you said? Yes. So is that singing, dancing, and acting all at the same time? Like Yes, but <laughs> Whilst I did learn mm. ballet and whatnot growing up, I never thought that – I wouldn't call it dancing. I'd just call it like walking around the stage. But recently I went for a, an audition. Sounds like me on the dance floor. Yeah. <laughs> um, my first boyfriend was really good at cha-cha. Yeah, the yeah. We used to go to country dances. In fact, yeah, yeah. I'd love that. So, I, like, I'm coordinated. But, like, you know, I'm middle age. I yeah. wouldn't call myself a dancer or go to a dance school or anything. Yeah. And I went to this audition. They're like, sing the song, fine, tick the box. Yeah, yeah. And then a new experience, read the lyrics. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense, you know, mm. read the lyrics. And then he says, the guy running the audition, um, nobody is to leave because we're going to have a dance audition. Mm. This was just last week at 10 p.m. at Blacktown. <laughs> my eyes nearly popped out of my head. It's like a dance audition? Anyway, they had like lunges up and down the room and all this other stuff. And in my head it's like, I'm auditioning for a role of a middle-aged woman because I am middle-aged, like thinking that I'd fit the part. And these lunges are for the pirates in the show. It's like, I, I really don't think I need to do this. Yeah. But anyhow, I was really proud of myself. I did the lunges up and down. I won't tell you that I couldn't walk the next day. So lucky he didn't get me over here walking up the stairs yeah. then. But yeah, <laughs> it is a bit of that. But I don't audition for like Mamma Mia where they've got dancing and prancing yeah, yeah, all over yeah. the stage. <laughs> yeah, I've ruled that one out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is there a show that you'd love to perform in? Well, I really love um, this Gilbert and Sullivan that I've yeah, got into yeah. now. I love that a lot. Um, so I'd love, I love that. Um, Stephen Sondheim is an amazing composer. Um, he is in America the same time as Andrew Lloyd Webber was in London. I don't know if you know Stephen Sondheim, but um, he's written some amazing musicals. I'd love to be in one of his. Mm. The, the music, the guy's a genius. The yeah. music's amazing. What's some of his musicals? Um, Into the Woods. I have to sort of 
that was that's in the top of my head now. Okay. You putting the pressure on, I can't think what else yeah, no, off right the top on. of my head. No. But there's a, there's a lot of them. When I leave here, yeah. I'll think of I the wasn't whole. Wasn't prepared list. for an exam, John. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. I'm uh, okay about. No, not at all. Uh, it's funny because we had um, just we had refreshed. You know, I couldn't get out of bed this morning. My brain's not switched on in that area. <laughs> we had one of the cast from Hamilton on um, the podcast. Oh, right? did you? And he did about five or six roles, didn't he, Julia? Yeah, yeah. And we were kind of um, uh, observing that, unfortunately, Australia, you know, you, you get one show for, for a long period of time, whereas yeah. when you go to the USA or you go to the UK and you go to the West End, for example, the shows just run for 20, 30, 40 years, you know, like Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera, Cats, Miss Saigon, that kind of stuff. They're just on all the time because you've got the demand and the tourism and, and basically the supply. Um, whereas here, we're, we're not as lucky. Uh, which is a real shame because it was a massive part of my life going to the theatre, and I absolutely loved it. But we we don't really get the opportunity to do it too much here. Yes, well, they're professionals too, and keep in mind, like we're amateurs, and I don't like to use that word amateur <laughs> because it implies beginner. Mm. But the people that are in the show, I'm the total beginner, mm. and the singers that I'm surrounded by are at a whole different stratosphere mm. to mm. me, and. Because it's not paid for, which is what amateur is, yeah. not beginners. Mm, that's okay. We're amateur podcast hosts. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. The, these people, like you go on to the next show and the next show, and that's what keeps the interest. Mm. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yep. And it takes a massive amount of learning to learn all that music. Oh, of course. Yeah. Total respect to anybody on the stage because the hours that you put in. It's huge, Big huge. Um, what's one thing you'd do differently if you could go back and do things again? Not a thing. That's awesome. Not one Brilliant. thing, because as I've said to my children growing up, mm. it's really dangerous to go back and say, I wish I had done this at this age, because most people think that. Mm. But my stance on that is anybody, most of us, make the right decision for us at that time in our life with the knowledge that we have at that time. If you would make a different decision 10 years later, it's because you've had different life experiences and you have different knowledge that you didn't have then. So no point in beating yourself up for knowledge that you didn't have. I think that is a phenomenal answer. That is great. (laughs) Um, And actually probably a nice way to conclude the the episode. That was a very, very good message, Danielle. Thank you for sharing your story. Pleasure. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. For those of the that for those that have tuned in, they've listened. They're listening to the podcast, but they want to learn more about you, um, buy products, in, engage. How do people get hold of you? Send me an email, Danielle at coco k o c o dot global. Perfect. Awesome, and we'll include that in the show notes as well. Danielle, thank you for coming on Lifestyle Pirates. Look Pleasure, forward, look Lifestyle Pirates. I didn't pick that one up <laughs> until the end. <laughs> <laughs> and we shall see you guys next week for next week's show. Hey, Roo. Yeah.